Hello, my name is Dan Other, and I'm a professor at the Missouri University of Science and Technology with a passion for solving complex problems through the lens of engineering. Welcome to another episode of our podcast series designed to showcase the work of professionally licensed engineers in humanitarian engineering. In this episode, you'll hear from engineers talking about their approach to engineering resilience in the world from three different vantage points. As engineers passionate about the humanitarian engineering space, we have a unique opportunity to bring humanitarianism and technology together in pursuit of what I have called becoming V-shaped professionals. To learn more, sit back, relax, and enjoy this glimpse into the fascinating world and work of humanitarian engineers. My name's Dan Other. I'm a professor at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. I'm also a member of the board of directors for EWB USA. So in that role, we help set some of the long-term strategies and some of the, the immediate policies that face uh, the students and the professional chapters every day when we're trying to do our work. I'm gonna talk with you about some learning objectives. Here's what I hope you get out of today's presentation. By the end of this presentation, you should be able to define sustainable development, describe Maslow's hierarchy of needs, sketch a transdisciplinary approach to meeting needs. I'm hoping that you'll be able to differentiate between these terms. What do we mean by development? What do we mean by disaster? What do we mean by building back better? I'd like you to be able to defend the approach for leveraging financial systems to support technological systems. See, we're engineers. We tend to think in technology and we tend to forget that things need to be paid for somehow. So I'm hoping that you'll understand that there's an interplay between our financial systems and our technological systems. And then ultimately for you to start to formulate a personal strategy for how do you interface these together as a person who's trying to advance the mission of EWB USA. This first one, sustainable development. Now, many of us know the Our Common Future, published in 1987, often known as the Brundtland Report. And sustainable development, the definition that we often use comes from this report. I've actually just done a, a screen capture of a page from the report where that definition appears. And let's read through it together. Sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the present, without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And that's where most of us usually stop. But that's not where the definition stops. In particular, that concept of sustainable development includes two key points. Number one is that we've got to emphasize this word needs. We're not talking about aspirations. We're not talking about desires. We're, not, we're talking about needs, meeting people's needs particularly essential needs, particularly the needs of the world's poorest. The second idea is that there are limitations on meeting needs. Technology limits that. Social organization and governance limits that. Financial structures limit that. The environment's own ability to provide limits that. So our job is to help meet needs, but within these constraints. What's the way to conceptualize needs? In 1943, Abraham Maslow's published The Theory of Human Motivation. And Maslow defined needs as a pyramid. At the base of this pyramid are what we call physiological needs. This is the need for air, the need for water, the need for food. We typically in EWB meet physiological needs. 
But there's also needs that we can meet as engineers. We can meet safety needs. See, having access to food is important. Having access to water is important. But having access to food and water at all times, even in a disaster, that's a need as well. That's actually a safety need, a security need. We can think about love and belonging. We can think about self-esteem. These kinds of needs are met increasingly as our basic needs are taken care of. So historically, EWB projects have focused on physiological needs, but I'm proposing that maybe we can also focus on safety needs. Maybe in an era of resilience, we can think a little bit beyond access to food and water, and we can think about access to food and water even in times of distress. Now, what's a framework for understanding this? The National Science Foundation of the United States has produced something called Convergence research. The idea here is that it is research that's driven by a specific and compelling problem, such as a deep scientific question or a pressing societal need. How does the NSF propose that we meet these needs? Well, we do deep integration across disciplines. We're bringing knowledge and theories and methods, data and research approaches, specialized languages, professional practice. We intermingle them together. And what comes out of this are new paradigms, perhaps even new disciplines. Many of us think about what we call I-shaped professionals. You get your bachelor's degree, you've got a certain depth of professional practice. You get a master's degree, you've got a little bit further. You get a PhD, you get your PE license, right? We can imagine that engineers can become increasingly specialized. They can become better and better engineers, I-shaped professionals. If we look to other fields, like for instance, healthcare, they've developed something called the T-shaped professional. You see at the bedside, a physician and a nurse and a pharmacist and a social worker, they all have to work together to help somebody get well. It can't just be the physician. It can't just be the nurse. It can't just be the pharmacist. Healthcare has developed what we call the T-shaped professional practice. They actually train in schools of medicine and schools of nursing and schools of pharmacy. They train those professionals together at the bedside. We can, of course, do this in engineering. I can take my engineering and plus up some business skills, or I can take my engineering and plus up some legal skills. But I'm going to propose to you that there's actually something different when we're talking about convergence. I'm going to actually propose that what we're looking for is the V-shaped professional. We want to emphasize the V-shaped professional. We want to talk about the value of humanitarianism and technology coming together. So let's look at the words on the right in these definitions. Humanitarianism incorporates a vast spectrum of subjects. From the history of anti-slavery movements in the 18th century, emergency relief in times of famine, response to refugee crisis, and now we're into sustainable development as part of professional humanitarian response. When we blend humanitarianism and technology together in a V-shape, we have to start thinking about our development and our disaster differently. Now, this is a report put together in 1994, and I just grabbed this as a frame shot from this report. Now, when most of us think about doing development, we tend to think about development in this upper right-hand quadrant. We think about that development reduces vulnerability. I mean, if folks have access to water, isn't that good? Well, it is, but sometimes maybe it isn't. There is development that can actually increase vulnerability. I mean, like for example, 
How many of us in an EWB development project have laid pipe across the field like this picture here on the right that we're using as our screen background? Well, people come to depend on those kind of water systems. But when it's really close to the surface like that, isn't it likely that somebody's going to come along and dig in that field in a few years and maybe hit that pipe incidentally and maybe you know, damage the way the community gets access to water. Now, I'm not saying that this is bad design. I'm saying we do development in ways that can actually increase vulnerability, that can actually cause setbacks when disasters occur. How do we actually deal with this going forward? Well, in 2015, the United Nations put together what's called the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction. The idea here is to do these A through D on the left to reduce people's exposure to disasters, reduce the number of people that die, reduce the number of people that are affected, reduce the cost, reduce the disruption to infrastructure by also increasing things like substantially increase E, F, and G, substantially increase that countries have plans for dealing with disasters, that there's international cooperation, that we've increased access to early warning and detection. But that's not where we stop. That's where we start with disaster risk reduction. The next step we think about is building back better. And I'm not talking about a political platitude. I'm talking about something that the World Bank and the United Nations have put together. The idea here is that when we are interested in development that focuses on resilience, it's not just about access to water. It's not just about access to food. It's not just about access to shelter. It's about access to those physiological needs in all circumstances, including when a disaster has occurred, including getting us back to development as quickly as possible after a disaster. Building back better is not just about creating development. It's about creating development that's resilient. And so when we look at other frameworks like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, we think, okay, we're EWB. We do goal six, clean water and sanitation. We know that, right? I mean, that, that's what we're into. Or we do things like we'll put in a footbridge or we'll put in a new classroom. And those are all fantastic activities for development. It's also important that we think about all of these goals, including goal number 17, the partnership for the goals. This is where finance comes into sustainable development. We can't do these things without leaning on finance. Well, what does that look like? Well, if we look at data, and this is data over time, two different graphs. This is world GDP on the left, and this is population on the right. You'll notice those x-axes are similar, but not exactly the same. And we say, well, you know, Wait a second. You mean around 1800, we started getting rich? And in 1900, by 2000, the world is pretty, it's starting to get pretty rich. And if we look at the graph on the right hand side, world population, we notice actually, wait a second, around 1800 is when the world population started to take off. In other words, sustainable development means something happened that caused us to start having more financial resources, which also helped us to have more people. Well, what's the cause? What happened in 1800? Now, this isn't exactly 1800, but this is in this period of time. There are two big things that happened that are driving sustainable development or development in general. One is technology, access to things like the steam engine or today access to the internet. But the other is access to finance. Just like Watt's steam engine is important, 
Lloyd's of London underwriting room is important. See, it's great that we can do a technology, but if we can't finance it, and if we can't finance it over time, and if we can't sustainably finance, well then it's technology that never comes to fruition. And so if we think about this, this is Halfpenny's paper from 2019. I really like this. This is coming out of, you know, kind of hardcore engineering. And, and let's look at this graph on the left, right? What we're talking about here is deterministic design. We as engineers tend to use safety factors, right? We design something to operate under a certain condition, and it does. And every so often, the conditions are tough enough that our system fails. And so we use a safety factor to keep our system from failing. And so an engineer says, it'll work. I've designed it, and I've designed it with a safety factor. But that's not the way finance works. See, finance isn't going to trust you that it's going to work. They're not going to spend money on a safety factor. Finance wants to know what's the probability of failure. What's the risk? See, we finance things based on risk, not on safety factors. The bank says, if you can tell me that the risk of failure is at a certain level and that your risk of failure is better than somebody else's, well, here's a loan. Go forth and do your design. Go forth and build the thing that you as an engineer want to build. See, there's an interplay between our engineering and our finance. And so if we bring this home to EWB and we think about it, it means when we put in a water pump, when we put in a community distribution system, when we help with access to food, when we help with access to latrines, it's not just about developing systems that meet the basic physiological needs. It's about developing systems that are resilient. It's about systems that will meet those physiological needs, even in disasters. Now, in my case, I've got a link here to a paper that I published recently working in the Caribbean, trying to help fishers have access to insurance. And you might say, well, why would a professor of engineering promote insurance? Well, you see, if you're a fisher and you're living in the Caribbean and you go out in your boat, you're fishing for food. And if you drag those nets around capturing food, everything's great. But if a storm comes up, and your traps and your nets get left behind because you've got to head into shore quickly. Those nets and those traps continue to do what's called ghost fishing. It tears up the reefs, it overfishes areas, and nobody ever harvests any of those lost fish. Estimates around the world are that something like a half of our fishing is from ghost fishing, from devices that are left behind. Now, why in the world would you leave your fishing net behind and rush into shore? Well, of course, you feel like your life's in danger. You've stayed out fishing to the last possible moment because you needed to catch fish for your family right up to the moment when the storm got so bad that you had to rush into shore. Well, what if we gave you insurance so that you had a financial cover that meant you didn't have to put your life in danger fishing right in front of a storm? You could maybe go ahead and say, you know, the weather report tells me a disaster is coming. I can pack it in and I can bring in my gear safely, get my boat up on shore, and I'll dramatically reduce the amount of ghost fishing that goes on. You see, when you link technological systems and financial systems, when you take care of safety needs in addition to physiological needs, you plus up resilience. You dramatically change what's going to happen in the environment. And so here's some of these conclusions. I hope I've convinced you that sustainable development is about meeting needs and describe that those needs include both physiological needs as well as safety needs. 
I hope I've convinced you that the V-shaped professional is one of the ways we'll address this in the future, that I've described to you that there's a difference between development and disaster and building back better, and that the relationship between financial systems and technological systems is important to our future when we're doing development engineering. And hopefully you're starting to say, you know, maybe if I think about my own life, my own health insurance, my own automobile insurance, my own renter's insurance or homeowner's insurance, I can see that there's some interface between my technological systems, like my anti-lock brakes and my fire extinguisher, like my BMI and whether I smoke or not and how that relates to the price of my health insurance. I can see that there's a relationship between technological systems and financial systems in my own life. And I can see where I can use that as I'm doing development work with Engineers Without Borders. Thanks a lot for your time and attention. I really appreciate it. All right, that was my take on how our work as engineers is intersectional. Now let's hear from Jenna Micas, another practicing engineer doing fascinating work in Australia and around the world at the intersection of multiple disciplines. Hi everyone, my name is Jenna Micas. I'm a strategic advisor with a background in engineering, sustainable architecture, and building intelligence. Much of my work relates to crafting creative, pragmatic solutions that balance smart and connected portfolios, engaging environments and experiences, and health and wellness-focused designs internationally. My primary objective is to design for flourishing health and well-being. I'm currently living and working in Brisbane, Australia, where I consult, advise, speak, and teach capstone courses across design, engineering, and business all while finishing a PhD of my own. My research builds on 20 plus years of advisory work conducted with public and private clients around the world. And what I'm here to talk to you about today, best practice DEEM perspectives for impactful design and a rewarding career. Before I dive in, I'd like to begin by paying my respects to the First Nation owners of the lands upon which I work, teach and study at QUT in Brisbane, Australia, the Turrbal and Yugara people. I pay my respects to their elders, lores, and customs, and I recognize that the lands have always been places of teaching, research, and learning, and that their lands were never ceded. I have five aims that I'd like to hit during my talk today. These include emphasizing the value in the following. The first, a multidisciplinary background for better work and a better career. The second, an arts-based approach for impactful design. The third, designing for human and planetary health. The fourth, empathic, inclusive design for all, and the fifth, self-care, valuing your past, present, and future self. Let's get started. Aim number one is all about appreciating a multidisciplinary perspective, whether it be enhancing your own career by being open to game-changing experiences throughout your life, or appreciating your colleagues' different perspectives, all to result in more interesting solutions. But before we get to those, it might be helpful to share a bit about my background. Here is a representative map on places where I have volunteered, studied, and worked over the past 20 years since completing my engineering program. These interests have primarily taken me across the Americas, Europe, and Australasia. Since beginning my career, I've mostly been based in Washington, DC. However, I currently work teaching research in Brisbane. As the talk title suggests, I have a bit of an unconventional background that balances engineering and the arts in work that cuts across strategy consulting, sustainable design, business and building intelligence, and human behavior. While it may seem like an unlikely circuitous path to some, it has led me to have depth and breadth in the work that I do. 
It also highlights the adaptability and the resilience built by an engineering-based education that includes arts and sciences perspectives. I'm able to see connections across subject matter easily, identify areas of opportunity and communicate those, and select the work and research that I do. So to quickly walk through my background, I began by studying mechanical engineering and business at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore before starting my career as a digital transformation consultant. I did that for about 10 years for the US government and eventually other country governments, including Australia's. While working at the Australian tax office in Canberra, the capital of Australia, about eight years into my career, I experienced my first game-changing career moment. I realized that I was more intrigued by their new sustainable office space than the recruitment and the retention plan that I was there to craft. I decided then and there to pivot back to my engineering roots and transition my consulting work to be more about the built environment. Around that same time, I came across an article while on holiday in Europe. It was in the house and home section of the Financial Times, not something that I normally pick up. It discussed emotionally intelligent design, basically how our buildings impact our physical, mental, and social health. Though I had a deep appreciation for the arts that was ingrained since childhood, the idea of combining engineering or design with, of all things, psychology seemed at once both contradictory and fascinating. As someone who had always been influenced by home, work, and study space, this concept of architectural impact really resonated with me, though. It was my second game changer, and it made me want to know more. Those experiences led me to pursue a Master's of Science in Sustainable Environmental Design at the Architectural Association in London. There, I was able to develop a scientific take on how to design buildings to require less energy, how to engage occupants behaviorally to demand less energy, and how to meaningfully connect humans and their environments using design. With that background, I transitioned back into strategy consulting, this time for buildings and cities. I worked as a director of building intelligence at a sustainable engineering firm, as a head of transformation at a smart building strategy firm, and I eventually created my own consultancy, Uta Group, based on Aristotle's concept of flourishing health and well-being called eudaimonia. Learning about Aristotle's concept of flourishing or eudaimonia occurred during my third game-changing moment, one I experienced while on vacation in London. There I attended an exhibit on well-being-based design and I was hooked. Since then, I've built up my consultancy and transitioned into academia to explore approaches relating to how to design for people's best selves. As I enter my third decade of my career while at QUT, I now have the chance to combine my interests and focus on health-based design of people and planet. I can consider things like philosophy as well as engineering, and it's all done to explore wicked scientific problems relating to urban informatics, subjects that cut across people, place, and technology. That takes me to my next aim, aim two, appreciating an arts-based approach for impactful and unforgettable design. Given my philosophical founded approach to the science-based work that I do, it's probably obvious that I appreciate both left and right brain problem solving. As shown in this Mercedes-Benz ad, left and right brain skill sets are required when creating products of style and of consequence. Now, I'm not here to sing the praises of expensive automobiles today, but I do think there is huge value in analytical, practical, logical left brain thinking and in creative, poetic, sensory right brain engagement, especially when they're combined. It's what appeals to us as humans, and by valuing these abilities, it's what makes us good designers. Further, when arts and sciences are combined, it can help with making scientific concepts more relatable and impactful to the masses. 
One great example of this is one I recently came across. It's a depiction of two terms made popular by Glenn Albrecht, a professor of sustainability at Murdoch University in Perth, Australia. He's a transdisciplinary philosopher with a concept and focus on ecosystem and human health. He discusses two concepts he's created. The first is called solastalgia. That's the homesickness that you have while still at home on the earth. The second one is a more hopeful term that he created called solophilia, the love and political responsibility that we have for our home, again, the earth. His ideas about transitioning from hopeless feelings of solastalgia towards empowering action-based feelings of solophilia are fascinating. However, they're not easily graspable at all. Luckily, his work has inspired some incredible art, including some by a US-based self-proclaimed sci artist named Kate McDell. Kate depicts these complex concepts and gives them life, even including a koala in the mind of the solastalgic thinker, appropriate given the origin of the word coming from the Australian Albrecht. Here she shows how this more cerebral concept is steeped in the mind and in memory, while the solophilic concept is more about empowerment, responsibility, and doing by showing a hand. With art, concepts can become more powerful, understandable, and unforgettable. The third aim is about my current passion, designing for human and planet health, why this is vitally important to all of us. TEDx talks abound that discuss the inextricable link between climate change and public health. I'd like to highlight two today. The first is by Jonathan Patz, an MD, MPH, and professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who directs the Global Health Institute. He shares climate change warming trends and the links that they have with poor human health in his talk. Courtney Howard is an emergency physician who has worked in Doctors Without Borders. Her talk focuses on spreading awareness on how a healthy planet spurs healthy people. That's the natural environment's link to our health. Much of the work that I do now, especially since COVID occurred, focuses on designing for health in the built environment. While this includes buildings and sometimes smart technologies, many of the concepts can be applied for general housing worldwide, including Engineers Without Borders projects. I've applied these concepts in Nepal on volunteer projects and in Silicon Valley with clients. 98% of the people on earth spend 90% of their lifetimes in buildings. According to the International Well-Building Institute, where I advise, Buildings are where we live our lives. They can help or they can hinder. As Joseph Allen of Harvard states in his New York Times op-ed piece, your building can make you sick or it can keep you well. Again, this applies for all enclosed spaces anywhere. As long as humans are inhabiting a space, it's vital they receive the physical, mental, and social health and well-being support they require for body, mind, and emotional, spiritual wellness. Now, how can we create better spaces for people? by designing for better planetary conditions. This image from a Medium article from this past January highlights the benefit of planet-centric design. It suggests we transition from human-centered design to planet-centered design. By doing so, we not only improve the planet's flora and fauna, but we also go back and we improve human health. What it doesn't say is that when humans are healthier, they often want to do better for the climate, thereby further symbiotically improving the planet. That's a key piece of this wicked problem solution, symbiotically beneficial design. And that's why it's a key aim today. I recently have become interested in inclusive design, also known as universal design in the US, as an ideal approach to creation. It emphasizes empathy and respect while also encouraging good design that benefits a wide variety of people. Inclusive design is about making places and products that everyone can use. 
And it's touted as an approach that represents not only the right thing to do, but also an approach for good design results and good business. Jeremy Meyerson of Helen Hamlin Center for Design in the UK is a specialist in inclusive design. He shows the idea best in his bullseye diagram. Here you see how it's possible to design for average users in the center of the bullseye when you understand and design for the needs of edge demographics, those people with varying user needs or abilities on the outer edges of the circle. Significant design groups worldwide are incorporating this approach as a best practice in their work. It's worth learning more about if you aren't familiar with it. Final aim today is prioritizing your own self-care. Caregivers are told to never overlook their own health and well-being when caring for others. This is also true as an engineer or a design professional, especially ones who do volunteer work. Some ways that you can value your best past, present, and future selves are by, first of all, building on your childlike enthusiasm, not losing that artistic inclination that Picasso said was a natural childhood gift. Ensuring your needs are met, such as those identified on Maslow's hierarchy of needs triangle. And considering your future self, whether protecting yourself with a COVID safe mask now, or just designing for your future self and environment in the work that you do. This multi-generational approach is likely to take you far and keep you well. And with that, we have hit all five aims today. Hopefully you now see benefits to a multidisciplinary arts-based take on inclusive design done for human and planetary health, while also respecting your own personal needs for self-care. Wow, what a fantastic example of a V-shaped professional. It's fascinating to hear how Jenna has put her engineering skills to work across disciplines. Finally, to round out today's podcast, let's hear from a young professional, David, who is in the early years of his journey in humanitarian engineering. In this next segment, David will focus in on another core tenet of his work, teamwork and partnership. Let's take a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is David Getzov. I am the water project lead at the EWB student chapter at the Colorado School of Mines. And today, I'm really excited to be speaking to you all about trust, communication, and awareness in the partnerships that we made in our most recent remote project implementation over the last couple of years. So to jump into our project background and history, our team's goal is to work with this community in Los Gomez, Nicaragua, a community of about 300 people serving 60 homes and a school with a clean, reliable, and sustainable source of drinking water. And this project has been going on for seven years, way longer than my time as an undergraduate student here at Mines. We started back in 2014, and that was when we first partnered with Los Gomez and the EWB country office down in Nicaragua. Since then, we implemented a well, a pump, and the power supply for that pump back in 2017. And that was the last time anyone from our team has ever traveled down to Los Gomez, Nicaragua. And between 2017 and 2020, we completed our pipeline designs, did all the fundraising necessary for our implementation, and we're finalizing implementation plans for the summer of 2020 when COVID hit. And we had to quickly pivot and decided to remotely implement our project over the last year and a half, beginning in December, 2020. The most important aspect that allowed us to successfully remotely implement was understanding all the strengths with the partnerships we formed. So understanding how we could best work with the EWB country office, with our local partners here in Colorado, and with EWB USA in Denver as well. 
So just to dissect the players in these partnerships that allowed us to remotely implement, I'm going to talk a little bit about the student chapter here at Minds that I'm a part of and what we all brought to the table and how we were able to contribute to a project. So all the people pictured here are all of our students and professional mentors that were part of the project over the last few years. And they brought all the technical expertise. They were the ones designing, meeting week in, week out, and discussing all implementation plans every single day. We were also able to consult technical experts, you know, have people review our designs and get design feedback from them. And this was a really important part of our project because there were a lot of challenges to overcome. Being an undergrad student, we don't have the professional engineering knowledge that a professor or an industry professional could bring to the table. We also are able to read up on all those standards like U.S. codes and focus on those things that guarantee durability and sustainability in our system. Similarly, we were also able to do all the fundraising for our project. And we were able to do this through a Rotary grant locally here through the Westminster Rotary Club, as well as university allocations from our school. So we got a lot of funding from our university. The other major player that contributed to our project was the EWB country office in Nicaragua. And they were that physical presence in country. They were able to form all the site visits for us that us as a student chapter, unable to travel, were not able to do anymore. With COVID, we weren't able to travel and it was really important to get their on-site experience and hear from them all of the data and talking to the community members that we couldn't do anymore. They also have an immense amount of cultural understanding of how communities in Nicaragua are functioning, how to interact with them best, and how to communicate with them best. And through our communication with the country office, I think it really helped our connection with the community in Los Gomez. They were also the ones you know, doing all that in-person communication, like I said. They are all fluent in Spanish, and a lot of people on our team were not. So we had to communicate with the country office kind of to communicate to our community. So having all of those lines of communication very set in stone and solid um, was really important to our implementation. With regards to our actual construction, the country office has a lot of prior experience with similar projects. We were a water distribution project in rural Nicaragua and the country office works with projects like that all the time. They have a lot more expertise in terms of how these projects are ran and how to run them effectively. They were also in charge of all of the construction material procurement. We obviously sent them down a bill of materials, but then they were the ones that were able to order those materials and make sure they were delivered to the community on time. And that was very important as well. They also have a ton of local expertise in terms of hiring contractors and engineers to help do the work on site that us as students were no longer able to do. So they have a lot of connections in Nicaragua and were able to reach out on our behalf to help us hire a contractor and an engineer to do all the work on site for our students. This is all because of COVID. We were preparing to implement in the summer of 2020. I remember it very vividly. It was around March of 2020. We were deciding our travel team and then COVID hit and we had to quickly pivot and try to figure out how we could bring water to this community as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible. And we decided the best way to do that would be through remote implementation. And the method we used to remotely implement was hiring an on-site engineer to live in the community and work on-site for about 12 weeks 
And they have a lot of experience with similar projects and community-based construction in Nicaragua. So his experience was absolutely vital to our implementation. We also leaned heavily on the country office to communicate with the onset engineer, perform site visits, perform the assessments and the monitoring that a student chapter would be able to do on an implementation trip. So to kind of summarize the dynamics of our remote implementation and what made it successful, we had us, the student chapter, we were overseeing the designs, the materials, and the budget, and we're ultimately the ones approving all of the changes to those three aspects. So when there was a design change that needed to be made, we met with the country office and our onset engineer and discussed pretty intensely all the fine details of those changes. And we were ultimately the ones managing and overseeing the project despite being entirely remote. And then we had the country office and they were that liaison role between the student chapter, the onset engineer, and the community. They performed all the site visits again. They managed the in-country finances and were the ones hiring the local experts and the contractors on our behalf. They were helping us to hire our local engineer and he stayed in the community for 12 weeks and did all of the engineering work and did all of the oversight in the community every single day of the implementation. And we met with him very, very regularly to work through challenges and discuss the solutions to those. And there were a lot of those. These projects are very complex and there are a lot of challenges to overcome, especially during COVID that only posed more challenges and more risk to our implementation. So it was that communication between all three of those parties and constantly communicating with them on how to implement successfully is what made our project happen. So in conclusion, that trust and that communication was what made our implementation successful and what made it efficient and effective. And I think this was ultimately a much more realistic experience for our students. I think going down to the community for two weeks and implementing in as quickly a fashion as possible is not exactly a realistic industry experience. And having that all that time and focusing on that communication and that remote project management aspect of our project was really important and really impactful, I think. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of our podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this glimpse into the fascinating world of humanitarian engineering and its endless possibilities for working across disciplines and to build connections. Thank you to our sponsors, NCEES, for making this podcast series possible. To learn more about professional licensure and how it can open doors for you in the humanitarian engineering field, please check us out online. And finally, if you'd like to learn more or get involved with EWB USA, please visit our website, www.ewb-usa.org.